Good morning, everyone. I'm looking back at all you've done for me. It seems to me I never take the time. All my hours of heartbreak and despair You showed me how much you really care When all seemed lost, oh, you were there There's nothing like the love you give to me It lifts me up and takes me past the stars so far beyond I'd ever thought I'd go Who am I and what do I know? This pile of dust the wind will blow My Lord, my God, I worship you For who you are and what you do So much more that I can see Yeah I worship you Oh, I worship you, Lord You're everything I want to be This so much more that I can't see I'm finding out you're more than just a name It seems to me there's little that I know You've never changed your way in all the years And your hand, it wipes away my tears There's hope where once there were fears My Lord, my God, I worship you For who you are and what you do My Lord, my God, I worship you For who you are and what you do You're everything I want to be there's so much more that I can't see Yeah I worship you Oh, I worship you, Lord You're everything I want to be There's so much more that I can't see. I'll be right back. Let me just hang up the guitar. I'll be right with you. And you, while I'm doing that, go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1.
All righty, and uh, good uh, morning to all of you. <laughs> and uh, I'm just looking, I have a, I, I bought this uh, uh, a light to help with my lighting in this place. And my, and my, because I got, I got, I got two, I got one big window, which on a bright sunny day, which it's not gonna come out. It's supposed to be just cloudy today, but I don't know. So it messes with the light in the room. I, I like it when it had, lately, but actually when the last couple classes wasn't too bad. It looks like it was too, too much light, but it actually looks not, right now I have this, this other stage kind of sign. I don't know what they call it. They use it for uh, television and all kinds of stuff. So it's really cheap. So anyway, so hopefully it, it looks pretty good. I don't look, I mean, I'm doing the best I can. I have no makeup artist to help me out. Okay. So do you, what you see is what you get. I am what I is. Okay. And, um, Anyway, so uh, good to have you with us, and uh, for those who might be on the podcast at a later date and the recordings, good to have you with us. And you should be at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and uh, we're going to wrap up our study of Ephesians 2, 19. Remember, we're, we're actually almost done with uh, the second chapter of Ephesians. We're rapidly coming to an end. But today we'll be wrapping up uh, Ephesians 2, 19 by noting that in this verse, Paul says that Gentile Christians are fellow uh, citizens with the saints and members of God's household. And this will constitute our 124th hour in Ephesians. And uh, so we, uh, and, you know, this, um, and then we um, wanted to announce something that's coming up in, in the next uh, couple of uh, uh, couple of weeks. Actually, I, we're gonna, I'm going to be at the end of February. After we finish off chapter two of Ephesians, I'm taking like a two-week break. And uh, I've kind of planned this out because I teach at Doctrine Bible Church, as many as you know, and I teach there on Wednesday evenings and also uh, two, two hour-long sessions on Sundays. So I, I, if you add it all up, I'm t with three teachers, classes I'm teaching here at Winston Bowman, she said six classes a week. So what I decided to do is, uh, and actually it's, I have a really nice pace. I got a good uh, routine I'm doing, uh, but uh, you know, preparing the lessons is the, is the most difficult doing the books. But uh, what I'm, uh, what I'll probably do is every couple of months I'll be taking like a couple of weeks off and stuff. So like at the end of, uh, I think our last class for Ephesians and when we finish off Ephesians chapter two, that last class is, uh, uh, going to be uh, February, Thursday, February 22nd. So that'll be our last class before we have a break. And then when we resume classes, uh, it'll be Tuesday, March sec uh, 12th, Tuesday, March 12th, my brother Jimmy's birthday. And so, uh, so that's so I'll be I'll be announcing that as we get closer to uh, that date. So again, every couple of months I'll probably end up doing this, and uh, just to give myself a break and get and, you know, at, uh, it, you know the, the the teaching the lessons is is a piece of cake. It's not a big deal. Uh, it's preparing all these lessons. Like so, I'm doing Ephesians, and I'd like to be way ahead when I do Ephesians. Like when I teach a lot of these classes, I mean I'm four months ahead. So and the reason why I do that is for good reason because being a pastor of two ministries, even one ministry. Things come up, pop up, somebody dies, you have a personal issue, something's going on. So there's always something to distract you, you know, that people got problems, you're helping them out, and so you get distracted from these things, your studies, and uh, which is fine, but it's like, I, I think it's, you don't want to not study, because how can you feed the flock of God? So anyway, so we'll be, um, I do that just to keep, uh, you know, Get, get a keep up. Actually, I, I, what I do is a lot of times is I'm working on the lessons, and I'm also uh, uh, catching up on my reading and uh, and different things I'd like to do. I like to actually, when this uh, we got a summer break, I'm I really need to sit down and and uh, write that finish off that collection of 14 songs. I've got three done, and uh, for that new collection of songs. But I uh, I have a fourth song I really like. I've had it for a while since Iowa, and 
I think I'm going to, uh, I want to need, I need to do sit down and just write the melody and the lyrics to it some afternoon or morning, whatever. So I'll take one of those period. I have little interviews with a little break uh, to do that stuff. So anyway, so uh, glad to have you with me. And, uh, and so let's take a moment to sign the prayer. This is our custom. We take a moment to sign the prayer to examine ourselves to determine if we're in fellowship with God because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God, the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. We maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit and Colossians 3.16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing, or distracting to you, do what 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day that you've given to us and uh, another day to study your word. We thank you for those who might be joining us live or through the recordings at a later date on our various websites, podcasts, and media platforms that you've given to us. Thank you for them. I pray you would use them mightily and protect them from the evil one. I uh, thank you, Father, for uh, the study in Ephesians. I pray it will be a great blessing to your people uh, as individuals in their own individual walk with God, but also be a blessing to the body of Christ uh, now and into the future. And I just pray today that you, by the power of the Spirit, will help me to fulfill the purpose for which you gave me this gift, uh, teaching. And I just pray, Father, that you'll help me to communicate today your full counsel with regards to this passage in Ephesians 2.19 that we're going to finish today. Help me to do so with reverence, respect, and power so I can minister to your people and provide for them their daily bread. Because your word has taught us that man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds out of your mouth. And we thank you for the gift of the Spirit, and I pray the Spirit would do a mighty work also to the audience. I pray you would help uh, those in the audience through the Spirit to learn, understand, to concentrate, and to uh, carefully consider the passages and principles we'll be noting today in order to make personal application. And again, I pray that they would receive their necessary spiritual nourishment to go forward in your plan to become like your son. And also all of us as a corporate unit would receive what we need to hear as we interact with each other in the body of Christ. I also pray there'll be no problems with recording the video and the audio and the upload of these things to our various websites, podcasts, and media platforms that you've given to us. Thank you for them. And again, I pray you would uh, use them mightily and protect them from the evil one as you've been doing up to this present moment. I thank you for the streaming video by YouTube, uh, which does a great job. So I thank you for the service that they provide as well. So Father, we pray for this service in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen. All right, you should be at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And we're going to read the entire chapter of Ephesians, and then we're going to read it from my translation, the entire chapter, before we wrap up our study of Ephesians 2.19. So let's look at Ephesians 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to read for the ESV today. As many of you know, I like to read for the various modern translations, and also for my own as well. So it says in Ephesians 2, 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages, uh, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Then he says in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, uh, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." So uh, we see, before we read chapter 2 from my translation, uh, we see that uh, this uh, chapter uh, is uh, it, it, it's, it's addressed to the Gentile, the people who, are, uh, the recipients of this letter, as we saw, were Gentile Christians. And as we pointed out in our introduction, and many times since, the recipients actually were not just the Ephesian Christian community, uh, but also the various Christian communities in the Roman province of Asia, uh, and uh, Gentile Christian communities, uh, various uh, cities and, and uh, towns in the Roman province of Asia. It was written by Paul from his during his first Roman imprisonment. He was under house arrest, if you read Acts chapter 28, but he was changed to a Roman, a Roman guard. Uh, he alludes to that in this book later on, later in the book. Uh, it was, uh, again, during his first Roman imprisonment, and uh, so he's the author, and uh, he is... Uh, and remember we pointed out that pseudonymity was not accepted by the early church fathers or Paul, as we pointed out several many times in the past. And so the purpose of this letter is to maintain unity between the Jewish and Gentile Christian communities. And one indication of that taking uh, being the case is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, which as we've been pointing out is teaching us that Jewish uh, Christians and Gentile Christians, uh, the, the enmity that used to be between the two because of the Jews' uh, misapplication of the law and being arrogant because they had it or were given to it by, uh, given to them by God, and also uh, the dietary regulations, which actually prohibited uh, Gentiles and J uh, Jews from uh, Jewish believers from eating with Gentiles because they had the dietary regulations prohibited them from take, partaking in, in in food that was used by the Gentile uh, people, the indigenous people, Gentile people, uh, when Israel went into the land of Canaan. And uh, that were it was related to their the worship of their various gods. So God was trying to protect them from getting involved in idolatry because the practice the partaking of certain foods was 
related to certain uh, worship of certain uh, one of uh, certain gods uh, in in Canaan at that time. So he wanted to protect them from that, and uh, and so that that what you know we read Acts chapter ten. Peter had to be told in a vision three times. Uh, that it's uh, it's all right to go to a Gentile's home and to eat and to eat unclean animals, and so that ch- chapter tells us uh, that this was a problem between the Jewish and Gentile uh, uh, races. But through the bat- through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone at justification, and the baptism of the Spirit, which also took place at the moment of identif- uh, gen- uh, justification, uh, which identified us with Jesus in His crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session of the right hand of the Father. Both Jewish and Gentile Christians were now united. Now we take this in, in, in the 21st century in America, and for centuries now, Gentiles take the granted what they have. Where this passage is teaching us that the, the Gentile believers are on equal footing with the Jewish believers. This was phenomenal. We knew in the Old Testament that Gentiles would get saved. Paul even alludes to this in Romans 15, but was not known. And we're going to see this in chapter three, verses one through 13, which I just finished off yesterday which is an incredible passage, which talks about a mystery doctrine that was not, meaning it was not known to Old Testament saints, namely that Gentile church age believers are co-heirs, co-members of the body of Christ, fellow partakers of the Messianic promise with Jewish believers because of their faith in Jesus Christ, the justification and union identification with him through the baptism of the spirit at justification. And so that's incredible. So where that's we and so we are that's this passage is telling or that passage in Ephesians chapter three and here in Ephesians two eleven through twenty two is teaching us that we're on equal footing with uh, the, uh, the the Jewish believers that what we call today Messianic Jews today in our day and age so that's phenomenal so we have a great privilege uh, we are you know there's uh, neither Jew nor Gentile slave or free uh, male or female all are one in Christ. We're united through the baptism of the Spirit and our ju- at our justification. So, uh, phenomenal passage. And uh, so we see that uh, God wants us Gentiles to know how blessed we really are. In fact, if you read the first 10 verses of chapter 2, you know, uh, the first three verses, it, it tells us that we were enslaved to sin and Satan as cosmic system. This is true of the whole human race. But God in His mercy, which is an, an expression of His great love, uh, he he made us alive together with Christ and raised us, us raised us up and seated us with Christ through the baptism of the Spirit when we were dead in our sins and transgressions, and uh, so that that passage is accentuating the grace of God that has been demonstrated toward us and the grace of God is God's policy towards the sin, uh, sinners where He imparts to us uh, uh, blesses us with uh, unmerited blessings stuff that we don't earn or deserve. And so we have all these, you know, Paul talks about these in the, in the prologue of the letter, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, all the wonderful blessings that we have. I mean, we're the recipients of the work of the Father in eternity past, in election and predestination, the work of redemption of the Son at the cross, and the work of the Holy Spirit at, in the sealing ministry, as we saw in chapter th- uh, 1, verses 3 through 14 in the prologue of the letter. So, and there's many, many other blessings that we have we've been talking about in this ministry for years now. And so, therefore, we and the, 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 the critical thing that we need to understand as we go further, like we get into chapter three in that passage I told you about. But we actually see Paul alluding to this. Remember, in his first prayer in this letter, in Ephesians one fifteen to the end of the chapter, uh, he talks about Jesus Christ being, uh, you know, he was crucified, died, he was raised and seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all rulers and authorities. That's Satan's kingdom. 
So that means he's the victor in the angelic conflict. Uh, again, going back to the beginning, Adam and Eve were designed to rule over the works of God's hands. The writer of Hebrews, who I believe is Paul, in chapter 2 of Hebrews, at the beginning of the chapter, he says that we don't see all things subject to mankind. And that's because Satan usurped the authority of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when he got him to fall, when he got him to disobey God's uh, prohibition to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 said that we were designed to rule over the works of God's hands, but that's not the case, as the writer of Hebrews says, Paul. So then Jesus, to, in the first step in God restoring mankind as the rulers of planet Earth, was to is sending his son into the world to become a human being and to suffer the wrath of God in our place so that we wouldn't suffer in the wrath, the wrath of God in the lake of fire forever, to live the life of perfect obedience to the law that we couldn't, okay? And uh, so then he was crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated at the right hand of the Father. And that means that now he has the title deed to planet Earth, and that title deed we taught, we see in our Day of the Lord series here at DBC, and we've taught it in this place before, in, is in Revelation chapter 5. And the breaking of the the only one who was worthy to open that seven-seal scroll was the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's, that means he's got the title deed to planet Earth. And so for that, on the day of the first time the baptism of the Spirit took place, as promised by Jesus in John 7, uh, verses, uh, was it 37 through 39, uh, that the, the, the gift of the Spirit, which flows from the, the it's one of the benefits of the new covenant, uh, which was given to the Jew, P, Jewish people and the forgiveness of sins, of course. Us Gentiles are uh, partakers of that new covenant because of our faith in Jesus at justification and our union identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit, which not only unites us with Jesus, but also with Jewish believers. So therefore, what was given directly to the Jews, we partake of the new covenant and the, the other unconditional covenants because of our union identification with Jesus Christ, because we're now united to the Jewish a remnant of believers in the church. That's what Romans 11, uh, 14 through 21 is all about. So we're the wild olive branch and we've been engrafted in, contrary to nature, emphasizing the supernatural nature of this, to Jewish believers, that the olive tree, uh, uh, which is a, speaking of uh, regenerate Israel. And so we have this fantastic thing that's happened. So every time, on the day of, on the day of Pentecost, in June of 33 AD, when the baptism of the Spirit took, first took place, among Jewish believers, and as recorded in Acts chapter 2. At that moment, uh, that was when God was calling out a bride for his son, Jesus Christ. And we're the bride of Christ. Paul says that in Ephesians. And it was not known to Old Testament saints that Jewish and Gentile church-age believers would be uh, the bride of Christ, serve as the bride of Christ. And Old Testament saints are friends of the bridegroom, Jesus. So we are the bride of Christ, amazingly, okay? So uh, then the Gentiles... And stunningly, it was surprising to the Jewish people, uh, the Jewish believers in the church, and that uh, Gentiles, the first family, uh, Cornelius, the Roman centurion, his family and his friends, they believed in Jesus, as recorded in Acts chapter 10, and they received the baptism of the Spirit. So that, was the, that, that told the Jewish believers that something different has taken place. Now, the, the church, Gentiles and Jewish believers are partakers of the Spirit, in particular the ministry of the baptism of the Spirit. So, God is, and when the church age ends, that means the bride of Christ is complete. The members of Christ's body, the church, are complete. So the bride is complete. And that's, that's us. So the, what right now, God is building a bride, okay, from his son, Jesus Christ. Doesn't that sound familiar? Like uh, Eve and Adam, okay? Her biological life was taken from uh, Adam. 
So our you know, what we 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 have been united to uh, uh, we've been united to Jesus Christ and the Jewish believers, us Gentile believers in the Church Age, and we're the bride of Christ. So then, you know, the, the so this is phenomenal which has taken place, and uh, it should tell us a couple of things. One, we should uh, in, the, in the recipients of this letter understood is that we should we're, because we're brothers and sisters in Christ with Jewish believers. We should, uh, anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish sentiment should never be found in the church. Of course, it has over the centuries. And uh, that's if that's a, that's because they're not paying attention to what Paul's saying here. He didn't want these Gentile believers who he's writing to, to be arrogant toward the Jewish believers. And that's what he was worried about in Romans as well. And so, uh, and why? Because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And the, the, the barrier that hindered Jewish and Gentiles from interacting with each other uh, was destroyed with Jesus Christ's crucifixion, suffering the wrath of God on the, on the cross. And he destroyed the hostility. The hostility was caused by uh, the relationship of the Jews to the law and the dietary regulations and their misapplication of the law and thus their arrogance toward the Gentiles and not having anything to do with them, thinking they were better than the Gentiles. And that was not the case. So when Jesus did that, he, he, he basically, the law... Uh, was uh, was not in uh, in effect, and uh, he talks about uh, the the law. He fulfilled the law perfectly by keeping it perfectly, and he fulfilled the law in the sense that he suffered the consequences for us not keeping the law. So the law is not an issue anymore. It's been taken out of the way, as this passage in Ephesians two eleven through twenty two has been teaching us. So let's read my translation of uh, uh, Ephesians chapter two. And again, like I'm, I like to announce this all the time. My translation is more interpretive. All translation is interpretive. And any you can ask any inter, uh, translator. The thing with my translation is more we would say more like an expanded translation, but it's more wordier. And the reason why is like for example, um, I have expressions like each and every one of you or each and every one of us as a corporate unit. Uh, that's bringing out the distributive use of the second person plurals and the first person plurals of the verbs and, and pronouns that we have in this chapter. And in order, and the reason why is because it's distributive. I interpret it as is because Paul was trying to emphasize that every single member of the the Gentile Christian community and the and the Jew and the church as in all as altogether Jew and Gentile believers is the beneficiaries of these things he's talking about. It was, and it was true of every one of them. Okay, and then we also have things like. Uh, uh, faith in and union identification with Jesus Christ or you know you see prepositional phrases throughout the first two chapters here in him in whom in Christ Jesus in Christ in the beloved those are all those are shorthand a lot of people expositors could tell you this they've, it's been noted for centuries it's shorthand the question is how what extent is it shorthand what I mean by shorthand it's it's using the Lord Jesus Christ's name but it's not being explicitly telling us exactly what he means by this prepositional phrase. But you have to look at Paul's writings and you see it. Namely, it's that when he, I fig, he, he's, he's basically using the figure of metonymy where the person of Christ is put for faith in him at justification and union identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit. That's why we received all these things, those two things. So uh, that's why I translate it the way I do to bring that out for you, where the modern translations will not going to bring these out for you because they're not your interpreter. They're your translator. I'm both your translator and your interpreter. So it says in Ephesians 2.1, in my translation again, now correspondingly, even though each and every one of you as a corporate unit were spiritually dead ones because of your transgressions, in other words, because of your sins, 
Each and every one of you formerly lived by means of these in agreement with the standard of the unregenerate people of this age, which is the production of the cosmic world system, in agreement with the standard of the sovereign ruler, namely the sovereign governmental authority ruling over the evil spirits residing in the Earth's atmosphere, specifically the spirit who is presently working in the lives of those members of the human race who are characterized by disobedience, among whom each and every one of us also formally, for our own selfish benefits, uh, conducted our lives by means of those lusts which are produced by our flesh, specifically by indulging those inclinations which are produced by our flesh. In other words, those impulses which are the product of our flesh. Consequently, each and every one of us caused ourselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of our natural condition from physical birth, just as the rest correspondingly caused themselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of their natural condition from physical birth. So that's our description, Paul's description of us prior to our conversion, our justification. Then he says in verse 4, But because God is rich with regards to mercy because of the exercise of his great love with which he loved each and every one of us, even though each and every one of us is a corporate unit with spiritually dead ones because of our transgressions, he, the Father, caused each and every one of us to be made alive together with the one and only Christ. Each and every one of you, as a corporate unit in the Gentile Christian community, are saved because of grace. Specifically, he caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit, Jewish and Gentile Christians, to be raised with him. Correspondingly, he caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit to be seated in the heavenlies because of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus. There's the figure of autonomy. Verse 7, he did this so he could display for us his own glory during the ages which are certain to come. The incomparable wealth, which is the product of his grace because of kindness for the benefit of each and every one of us because of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus. Each and every one of you, as a corporate unit, is saved because of grace by means of faith. In other words, this salvation never originated from any one of you as a source. It originated as the gift from God. It does not originate from meritorious actions as a source, so that a person cannot, for their own benefit, enter into the state of boasting. Then he says in verse 10, For each and every one of us are his creative workmanship. For each and every one of us, and the Christian community has been created by means of our faith in and union identification with Christ Jesus in order to produce actions which are divine good. These, uh, these actions which are divine good, these God prepared in advance so that each of us would conduct our lives by means of them. Therefore, and that therefore in verse 11 is telling us that what he's going to say now is an inference, uh, a consequence of uh, what we just saw, read in the first 10 verses of the chapter. Therefore, he says in verse 11, each and every one of you as a Corbin unit must continue to make it your habit of remembering that formerly, each of you who belong to the Gentile race with respect to the human body, specifically those who received the designation uncircumcision by those who received the designation circumcision with respect to the human body performed by human hands, each and every one of you used to be characterized as without a relationship with Christ. Each and every one of you used to be alienated from the citizen Israel citizenship nation. Uh, specifically, each of you used to be strangers to the most important promise, the messianic promise, which is the product of the covenants. Each of you used not to used to not possess a confident expectation of blessing, a resurrection body rewards for faithful service. Consequently, each one of you used to be without a relationship with God in the sphere of the cosmic world systems. So like the first three verses, verse twelve is again describing the relationship, uh, the uh, the unregenerate state or the pre-conversion, pre-justification state 
of the recipients of this letter who, again, were Gentile believers. Now, here we have a contrast, like verse 4 in relation to the first three verses. Verse 13 is a con- presents a contrast with the contents of the fir- verses 11 and 12. So he says in verse 13, However, because of your faith in and union identification with Christ Jesus, each and every one of you is a corporate unit who formerly were far away, you Gentiles, have now been brought near by means of the blood belonging to the same Christ. For he himself personifies our peace, peace with God and peace with, between the two races, namely by causing both groups to be one, specifically by destroying the wall which served as the barrier, that is that which caused hostility, and that's the law, between the two races with each other and the two with God. In other words, verse 15, by nullifying, by means of his human nature, the law composed of the commandments, consisting of a written code of laws, in order that he might cause the two to be created into one new humanity by means of faith in himself and justification and union and identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. Thus, Jesus caused peace to be established between the two races with each other and the two with God. In other words, in order that he would reconcile both groups into one body to God through his cross. Consequently, he, the Lord Jesus Christ, put to death the hostility, again, between the two races with each other and the two with God. And he did this by means of faith in himself and justification and union and identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit. Correspondingly, he, as a result, came proclaiming peace for the benefit of each and every one of you, namely, those who were far off, the Gentiles, likewise, peace to those who were near, the Jews. Consequently, through the personal intermediate agency of himself, Jesus Christ, each and every one of us in the Christian community as a corporate unit, namely both groups, are experiencing access by means of the omnipotence of the one spirit to the presence of the Father. When we trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior justification, we appropriated the omnipotence of the spirit who then identified us with Jesus and his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session at the right hand of the Father. Now verse 19. Indeed, therefore... Each and every one of you as a corporate unit are no longer foreigners, that's to the covenants of promise, that is foreign citizens, but rather each and every one of you as a corporate unit are fellow citizens with the saints, that is members of God's household. Why? Well, verse 20 tells us, because each and every one of you as a corporate unit have been built upon the foundation, which is the communication of the gospel to each of you by the apostles as well as prophets. Simultaneously, he himself, namely Christ Jesus, is the cornerstone on the basis of its being continually fitted inextricably together by means of justification by faith and union identification with him. The whole building is growing into a holy temple by appropriating by faith, union and identification with the Lord. In other words, by appropriating by faith, your union and identification with him, all of you without exception are being built together into God's dwelling place by means of the omnipotence of the Spirit. So as we left off in our last class, what we pointed out in our last class when we uh, first started looking at verse 19, uh, this verse, Ephesians 2.19, is composed of, uh, it's, it's, it has two sections, uh, two pieces to it. We have, first of all, an emphatic inferential clause, which is araun, uketi, esta, zenoi, kai, paroikoi. And uh, this means, in my translation, I translate it as, indeed, therefore, each and every one of you as a corporate unit are no longer foreigners to the covenants of promise, that is, foreign citizens. The ESV, they translate it, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens. And then we have an adversative clause, a strong adversative clause, because it begins with the strong adversative conjunction, Allah. 
And that uh, strong adversative clause, which follows this emphatic inferential clause, is Allah, esta, sum politai, ton hagion, kai, oi, kai, oi, tutha'u, which I translate, but rather each and every one of you is a corporate unit, our fellow citizens with the saints, that is, members of God's household. And of course, the ESV, they translate it, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. So, in Ephesians 2.19, we're going to look at, for the rest of the class, uh, the, we're going to note the strong adversative clause, which completes the verse. And, uh, and, and we already looked at the emphatic inferential clause in uh, Tuesday. So today, in Ephesians 2.19, we, we, we're going to note the strong adversative clause, which asserts, as we saw in my translation, and the ESV, that each and every one of these Gentile church-age believers, who are the, fellow, who are the, the recipients of this letter, are fellow citizens, citizens with the saints, and we're going to find out who those saints are. It's not just church-age believers, as we'll see. So, the strong adversative clause asserts that each and every one of these Gentile church-age believers are fellow citizens with the saints, that is, they're members of God's household. And this presents an emphatic contrast with the emphatic inferential clause. Thus, it presents an emphatic contrast between these Gentile church-age believers being foreigners, or in other words, being foreign citizens in relation to Jewish church-age believers prior to their justification and that of them being fellow citizens with them and members of God's household uh, from the moment of their justification. And this brings out again another point. You know, there was a racial bigotry between the two races, the Gentiles and the Jews. They didn't like each other, okay? And in many cases, they still don't, right? So let's, so this is very important with like in this passage with relations to race relations, for instance, in the church. And what we have to offer to the world with regards to racial problems, you know, uh, which we have all over the world, right? And including our countries, as, fa as we all know. So, uh, so I'm a Gentile, a, a white man who's a Gentile, and I have African-American friends, black, that are believers as well. So we, we are brothers in, brothers in Christ. And uh, uh, what's so basically what, uh, and then we have, uh, you know, when we talk about race problems in the church, that should never happen because whether you're white, black, you're Pakistani, you're an Indian, uh, whatever you are, you're, what ethnicity you are, what language you speak, or what, uh, you know, whatever you are, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he's just, all that goes away. Uh, the, uh, with go, what we have is we maintain our racial identity as Gentiles and, and all of the different various peoples and, and ethnicities and language groups that are Gentiles. We maintain it, but yet there's unity. And there's a unity. And so we saw that in the church, the, the, the problem with race, racial bigotry, is automatically resolved. A lot of times we don't see that happening because the church is not taught these things. That's why. And if they are taught, they're not practicing. And I always maintain, and I'll stand by it, okay, that the war, the Civil War would have never happened if the churches in America were, the pastors were teaching this stuff. It never would have happened. Uh, look at, I can look at the Roman Empire. I said this before. The, the Roman Empire had all types of people with each other. Slavery was a major institution. Their economy was run by it just like the South's economy was in America in the, in the 18, 1700s. That, uh, that, that whole issue uh, was, uh, you know, slavery went away without a war. Okay, we, had, we had a civil war over that. And by the way, you know, a lot of, a lot of guys I know, that, they're conservatives and they say, 
look at the, the Civil War. You know, like people like these say, oh, it's about states' rights. No, it wasn't. I'll tell you right now, we know that from the documents. The, the South, they made, they made, uh, they made uh, offer to the North. It's, you look it up. In fact, it's, uh, it's, it's in the public record, okay? They said, if you don't abolish slavery, the South said, we'll not, we won't succeed. So they, di they didn't abolish, they did abolish slavery. And, you know, and then, so what happened? They had a war. So, you know, don't tell me that the, the South, the South was fighting for their, their, their livelihood because slavery, to remove slavery from the South would be devastating to their economy. So again, money drives everything, isn't it? Okay, that's the truth. So don't give me the states' rights garbage. It was involved, but really, it's just to overlook the real issue. You didn't, you didn't, they didn't want money taken out of their pockets, the slave owners, and so therefore, what happened was they had a, a bloodbath. Now, in the Roman Empire, they had great, tremendous institution of slavery, over 60 million by some estimates in the Roman Empire. Within a couple of centuries, you see it's gone. It disappeared. What happened? Well, you can read the epistles. Slave believers, slave owners and slaves were sitting down with each other and they're having fellowship. So Philemon is a great book that teaches about this. You know, Philemon has a runaway slave. Paul, he, he runs into Paul's arms while he's in prison, writing these letters, right? It's, 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 and he gets saved, this guy, this runaway slave. And Paul sends back a letter to Philemon. Hey, you know, you got back, you know, whatever he's cost you in money, I'll pay. And also, now you receive back not only your slave, but your brother in Christ. See, all the racial, social, economic, are all out put out of whack by the faith in Jesus Christ. So they didn't have to fight a war to get rid of slavery. The slave owners just willingly gave up their slaves because the gospel caused them, the spirit caused them to do that. Because they were brothers and sisters. They were their brother, their, their slave, they were they had slaves that were brothers and sisters in Christ. Of course they're gonna let them go. And that's what they did. Do you hear what I'm saying? I hope people are listening. Listen. But you know, we you know, we I, I have so many people I know that when they try to deal with race problems, they think that politics is gonna do it. They're so deceived, and it bothers me when believers don't understand that, and they don't trust the God. They don't believe the gospel can do this, solve the race problems, and, they, and a lot of problems in the, in the world. Let's take, for instance, you know, uh, this whole thing of being in union with Christ. You know, you are somebody, you know, people have problems with their self-esteem and all that. Well, guess what? The gospel changes everything. Your union identification with Christ changes everything. Uh, you know, you are somebody because you're in union with Christ. You sit at the right hand of the Father. You're going to reign with Christ for a thousand years in the millennial reign. Are you kidding me? So you define yourself by who you are, not how much money you, uh, who you are in Christ, not how much money you have. Really. It's like, so you could lose that money. You could lose your status in life, but you'll never lose your union identification with Christ. You know, and, uh, you know, people, you know, talk about their past. Oh, my past. I, uh, you know, I have, I had no, my, my mother I didn't have a mother. You know, I didn't have a father. Or they were junks and alcoholics. And, uh, you know, so, and they, they, they just, whatever. I was a drug addict. And they destroy their, their present and their future because they're so worried. They let their, their past drag them down. You've died. All those things died. The minute you trusted in Jesus, your Savior, all those things of your past are gone. People might remember them, of course. But God says, as far as the East to the West, I don't, 
You know, all your whole life, manner, way of life is has died on the cross with Jesus. So don't use your the fact that you didn't have a mother or a father to go out and live a life that honors God. You can't use that as an excuse, and people do it all the time in the Christian community. You've died with Christ. What does that matter anymore? So, great passage. So we'll continue to bring out implications of this uh, this text. But now the word fellow citizens. So if you look at the ESV, it says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. So the word for fellow citizens is what we uh, pointed out, actually we're just reading this, this clause, but the word for fellow citizens in the Greek text is sum polites, which describes church age, uh, Gentile church age believers as fellow citizens with the saints. Now, here's the big interpretive issue about who are the saints here. Well, as was the case when the word appeared in Ephesians 1, 1, 15 and 18, the articular genitive masculine plural form of this adjective, hagios, with the saints, here in Ephesians 2, 19, describes those members of the body of Christ who have been set apart through the baptism of the Spirit at the moment of justification in order to serve God exclusively. So, however, it's, so it's, talked, it's used of church-age believers, but not exclusively, okay? Uh, it, actually, it's referring uh, to Jewish church-age believers, but more than that, follow me. So we see it's also used to describe sinners justified by faith in the Lord in every dispensation in history, including the church age. So it's not, so when the, like, I, it's so funny, somebody asked me a question at DBC, remember my congregation there, about the word saints in, in, Ephesians, uh, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 22. And, uh, you know, like basically, you know, when they see the word saints, like a lot of Christians, uh, that uh, they think it's the church age believer. And so when they look, read Daniel 7, 21, is that, uh, is that who are those people? Who are those saints? They're Old Testament saints. However, no, they're actually, in Daniel 7, 21, they're not Old Testament saints. They're actually saints, believers that will be living during the tribulation period because that passage is talking about Antichrist and his actions towards God's people during the tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel. The church is gone. The 70th week can't start until the church is gone at the rapture. So the word saints, depending on the context, the context is going to determine who the referent is. So here, it's not only referring, this word saints, it's not only referring to church-age believers, uh, 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 church-age believers like Jewish and Gentile believers, but it's also used to describe believers who are justified by faith in the Lord in every dispensation of the past, including the church age. So this is indicated by the fact that this term saints, hagios, is not only used in the New Testament with church-age believers as its referent, but it's also used with Old Testament believers as its referent. Uh, such as Matthews 27.52, Revelation 11.18, and Revelation 18.24. The words referent is also believers living during the 70th week. Uh, Revelation 13.7, make that clear. And also it's you, the referent uh, is also of believers living during the 70th week who've been martyred. Revelation 8.3, 16.6, and 18.24 for documentation. Those believers living during the millennial reign of Christ from all dispensations, including the church age of the world's referent in Revelation 20, verse 9. So the referent of this term, Sahagio, saints, cannot be church age believers exclusively. And specifically, its referent cannot be Jewish church age believers being contrasted, contrasted with Gentile church age believers. How do we know that? Well, it's indicated by the fact that in Ephesians 2, 11-18, which we just studied in exhaustive detail, does not distinguish between Jewish and Gentile church-age believers, but rather asserts that they together 
form the new humanity which is in union with Christ and identify with him. And he is the head of the new humanity, as we pointed out. Secondly, it's indicated by the fact that Galatians 3, 26 through 28 asserts that the, the, during the church age, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. It says there, it says, and uh, Galatians 3, 26 through 28, for in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There's neither male nor female for all, all of you are one in Christ Jesus. So when Paul asserts in Ephesians 2, 19, that the Gentile Christian community, our, our fellow citizens with it, all believers throughout the past Old Testament dispensations, he's alluding to their heavenly citizenship, which Paul develops quite a bit in this epistle, in the epistle to the Philippian Christian community, because in it, in the Philippian letter, he teaches them, this Philippian Christian community, that they are citizens of heaven. In the Philippian epistle, Paul was addressing Roman, uh, addressing Roman citizens regarding their spiritual citizenship in heaven. And to teach this, Paul uses the polituma metaphor. He uses the verb polituomai in Philippians 1.27 and the noun, cognate noun of this word, polituma in Philippians 3.20. And they are terms the believers in Philippi would be familiar with because Philippi was a Roman polituma. Okay? So this citizenship is also alluded to as we see in Ephesians 2.19 and also Hebrews 11.14-16. And then we have Philippians 1.27. It says in the New American Standard uh, 95 version, it says, only conduct yourselves, polituomai, uh, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with mon one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So you can actually, um, you can actually translate it, conduct yourself as a citizen. Okay, Philippians 3.21 uh, Philippians 3.20 says, for our citizenship, polytumai. And polytumai is the word there for citizenship. It means, it says, for our citizenship, citizenship is in heaven, from which, heaven, we are also eagerly awaiting for as Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we complete our study of Ephesians 2.19, uh, we do it by noting the adjective oikeos. Oikeos is translated household. Oikeos uh, which also appears in the strong and adversative clause, and it's used figuratively here to describe sinners justified by faith in the Lord in every previous dispensation prior to and during the church age. So you, at the us Gentile believers, are members of God's household. Now, what's the implication there? Well, let me ask you a question. When I was in the Wenstrom household, I grew up in the Wenstrom household, my mother and father, okay? And I was, because I was part of their household, uh, they had they provided for me. I was their family. Of their, I was their son, their oldest son. How much more do you think God the Father thinks of you and I, and will take care of you and I, now that we belong to His household through faith in His Son Jesus Christ? He's going to provide for us. He will take care of us. All the logistical things that we need, not what we want or lust for, He gives us what we need to do His will and to get and to go through life and to prosper. So. Uh, when you you and I panic and get all worked up and anxious about stuff about our future, you're actually in, you know you're in, you're showing a lack of faith, and uh, you know if he could save you and I when we were his enemies through faith in his son and then place us in union with his son at the right hand of the Father, making us members of the new humanity with Jewish believers, I think he can I think he can give you the money for the phone bill. I think he he can get you through 
uh, you know, get your kids through college. I think I think he can I think he can help you. Okay, I think he's part. It's and I'm being my Massachusetts sarcasm. I think he'll take care of us. Okay, I have to remind myself of that all the time because as a pastor, we go through all kinds of crazy stuff, which I could write a book on one day, and I won't. <laughs> now, the articulate genitive masculine form of the noun Theos, God, refers to God the Father, which is indicated by the articulate construction of the noun, which in the New Testament commonly signifies the Father unless otherwise indicated by the context. So, the articulate construction, as we know, uh, we see with this word, it, it's uh, it indicates that this word Theos, God, is in a class by itself, the referent of this word God. He's in a class by himself, expressing the idea that there are many gods in the world, but the God Jewish and Gentile Christians worshipped was the only, one and only true God in contrast to unregenerate humanity in the first century AD, which worshipped a plethora of gods. They worshipped the pantheon of Greco-Roman gods. In fact, many of the recipients of this letter did so as well prior to justification. So, when Paul asserts that Gentile church age believers are fellow citizens with the saints. He means that they are members of God's household. In other words, the expression God's household makes explicit the expression fellow citizens with the saints. God's household is composed of sinners justified by faith in the Lord from every dispensation, who we noted are designated by the term hagios with the saints. So the, the, the metaphor God's household it actually appears in, in two other places in Paul's writings, namely Galatians 6.10 and 1 Timothy 3.15. It says in the Net Bible, Galatians 6.10, So then, whenever we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the faith. Uh, let me see if I can get a, uh, bring out where they say uh, household. Uh, I think Ephesians has it. In fact, I'm positive. Yeah, Okay. So then, we have as an opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. So that word household, they translate the word there, but the Net Bible, they do a little bit more um, interpretive thing. They say belong to the family faith. But you know, being belong to somebody's household means you belong to somebody's family. So it's a good, great translation. It makes actually explicit, you know, what's being said by the metaphor. So 1 Timothy 3.15, my translation, however, if possibly I'm delayed, Timothy, I'm writing at this particular time in order that you would know for certain how one ought to always conduct oneself in God's household. Okay, First Timothy is all about uh, the church, how Paul wants the church to function. Each individual member and the church as a whole, the pastors, the deacons, everybody, older people, younger people. And uh, so that's what this letter is all about. So he says, however, if possibly I'm delayed, I'm writing at this particular time in order that you would know for certain how one ought to always conduct oneself in God's household, which indeed, God's household, by virtue of its unique privilege and divine character, is as an eternal spiritual truth, that's the gnomic present of the verb there, the living God's church, the pillar, as well as support of the truth. Great passage. So, as we close. So therefore, Paul's asserting in Ephesians 2.19, that not only is the Gentile church-age believer a citizen of heaven, but they also now are members of God's household, which is a metaphor, as we pointed out, which expresses the intimacy they now possess with God the Father. Isn't that cool? You have This is telling us that you and I have intimacy with God the Father. When we get to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, and, um, and also, uh, what's the passage? Uh, we just saw in Ephesians 2, 18, we have access to the Father. Prosegoge, access to the Father. That means 24-7. 
It talks about the fact that we have intimacy with God through, you know, fellowship with Him, prayer, 24-7. I think it's the most important, He's the most important person that we need to just talk to, right, that we have in life, more than our friends and our family and our husbands and our wives and our children and our pastor, okay? It, we have access to Him 24-7, okay? So you have intimacy. You can get as close to God as you want. It depends on how much time you're going to put into the relationship. You know, the best marriages, the best relationships between men and women or men and men and women and women or whatnot or in the church is, you know, you can't be, you can't be on intimate terms with everybody and it's unwise to do so. Some people you can't trust. Some people they don't need to know. But the, the most, the best, the most intimate relationships, human relationships are those where both people are putting the same amount of effort into it. You know, so a lot of times marriages don't work and they're not functioning the way they promise and relationship between friends many times is because we're not putting the relation, the effort into the relationship as we should. So many Christians don't get the most out of their relationship with God and this intimacy with God because they don't put any effort into their relationship with God. They don't study their Bible. Uh, if they go to church, it's only on Sunday or Wednesday. You know, they don't have any sanctified time alone with God. They don't, they're not disciplined in studying the Bible every day. You don't have to study like me all day, but you don't even take any time to do that or read their Bible or pray. Uh, it's not a discipline for them. They don't do it every day. Uh, they, you know, they, so they, they don't, or they, they do that or they don't go to church. They don't interact with other members of the body of Christ. So how are you going to use your gift if you're never around the body of Christ? Because your gift is for the benefit of the body of Christ. You know, it's like as, as you treat your attitude toward Jesus is reflected toward your attitude toward his word, his, his mind and thinking, and his people who are members of his body and his bride. Okay, so we show that we don't really care or we're not putting a lot of effort into our relationship with God by the way we treat other members of the body of Christ and the way we, our attitude toward the Bible is. You know, people give the word, the word of God lip service. They don't apply it to their daily life. They make decisions that are contrary to the word of God. Okay, so that's why you're not getting the intimacy you want from God. You got to put some work into it. Okay, and you got to put some work in it. Otherwise, you you're just not really benefiting from what is already yours, intimacy with God. So this metaphor connects to Paul's statement in Ephesians 2.18, in which he asserts that both Jewish and Gentile church-age believers are experiencing access to the Father through the personal intermediate agency of Jesus Christ and by the omnipotence of the one spirit. So the metaphor of being a member of God's household is also connected to Paul's assertion in Ephesians 1.5 that both Jewish and Gentile Church-age believers have been elected by the Father in eternity past by means of the Father predestinating them to adoption as His sons. Roman-style adoption. He also asserts in that passage uh, that the Father did this because of His love for us through faith in Jesus Christ for Himself according to the pleasure of His will. What a great passage that is. Woo! Man. This book is something else. It's quite a great book. I, I've been, that's why I want to look at this and dig into this book a long time now. And I, I'm doing it and I'm really enjoying it, studying it and teaching it. There's just so many things. We, we, we haven't even got to the application section of the letter, which is the last three chapters, which gives you the application of the first three chapters. But uh, it, it has uh, all the stuff that we're learning and about who we are in Christ. You know, we're members of God's household. We're members of the body of Christ. We're in union with Christ. Uh, we're the object of God's love prior to our justification and object of his personal love now after justification. 
where members of the new humanity. We're going to reign with Christ. Oh, we're going to dispossess Satan, the fallen angels at the second advent. We, it's just so many things that we can get. And also it should, it should affect our behavior. How are we going to live with this, with, in reality in light of what God has done for us at our justification through the baptism of the Spirit? And all these other things he's done for us. And eternity past, electing us and predestinating us, making us a member of the new humanity. And what he's going to do for us in the future with a resurrection body and rewards for faithful service. Reigning with Christ during his millennial reign, maybe being an overcomer for faith, as a reward for faithful service in this life. Uh, and, uh, an overcomer has a position in Satan's millennial government. Read uh, uh, Revelation 2.26 on that. And so, so how should we live then? We should live godly lives. We should keep short accounts with God. First John 1 John 1.9, confess the sin in me. Don't wait until tomorrow. You should be have sanctified time alone with God and the word of God in prayer every day and also meet with your church. Be under a pastor because you are assigned to a pastor. It's up to you to go to where he is. And uh, if you can, if he's not in your area or whatever, he left, he just, you, got, you, can, you can watch me on the internet or listen to me. But uh, a lot of people don't have, unfortunately, uh, pastors in their area that's teaching this, the full counsel of God and that's a big problem in our church right now. Uh, I've talked to several churches. They have problems finding replacements for the pastors that they had lost. And it's because the guys are running away from the ministry for various reasons. One, the church is not supporting them like they should. They got families. And a lot of it is just uh, running them off because they, uh, they're people who don't want to follow God's program. They got their own agendas. And there's a lot of other things too going on. It could be their laziness on their part, their lack of faith on their part, some of them. And uh, and not and, and not uh, that's why they bail out when the time gets tough they walk away, so uh, you can't do that. So in other words, we have we have a responsibility to be a part of the of our church, serving in the church, being a good steward with the time, talent, and treasure and truth that God gave us, and you know we're to be uh, growing to spiritual maturity, practicing the command love one another, which will be expressed by serving each other and by praying for each other and by forgiving and being patient and tolerant with one another because God's been that way toward us and he is now, okay? So there's a lot of things that we can, we, what God's done for us in the past and what he's going to do for us in the future should definitely translate in our behavior. It should definitely affect our behavior because we must live in light of what he's done for us in the past and a man consistent with what he done, did for us in the past and what he's going to do for us in the future. Well, we'll pick this up on Saturday at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. Thank you for joining me. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time to study your word. We pray this class will be a great blessing to your people, bringing glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. Please, through the Spirit, help people to carefully consider what's been taught today in order to make personal application. I pray that each person would be spoken to and also all of us as a corporate unit. And again, I thank you for those who are listening in or watching this class. In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.